I want to take this morning to talk about some issues that we're facing in the brotherhood. That's not what this meeting is going to be about. This meeting is going to be about something else. And yet I made a pledge to myself about a year and a half ago that at some time or another in every congregation where I would be preaching, there are some things that need to be brought to the attention of the brotherhood. Maybe you're not aware of all that's going on, but I am. I not only read what my brethren and others are saying about the church. Some of that I get to experience firsthand when I talk to people face to face. There is a segment in our brotherhood intent on making the Church of Christ just another denomination. In their eyes, they have already reached that point and they rejoice in it. But they say it won't be long until the rest of them follow along with us. Now, this same thing happened a hundred years ago. During the 1800s, there were a group of people who kept clamoring, just like Israel did, we want a king so we can be like the nations around us, kept clamoring, we want this and that, and we want this changed and that changed. And the purpose being, we want to be like all the other religious groups. We want to just be able to join together in one grand fellowship and sort of be like the European common market where all the boundaries have been done away with. Jane and I have to be in Frankfurt, Germany in about two weeks. All you have to have now is a passport to get off the plane. But you don't have to show any kind of identification from one country to the other. All uh, the import taxes, other things have been done away with the border. So they are rapidly becoming one nation like the United States of America have banded together to become one nation. In order to do that, you have to give up a lot. You cannot be different from anybody else. If so, then that union doesn't work. I want to mention some things that happened in the 1800s. I want you to listen very carefully and see if you have not heard these same voices in the 1900s. At the end of that 100-year period, it came time for the census of 1906. Those responsible for the census discerned that there were two different groups in the U.S. who called themselves the Church of Christ. And yet they did not believe and teach the same things. And sensing that David Lipscomb, who was the founder and the author of the Gospel Advocate, was a man who could speak from a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. Men from the Census Bureau came to Nashville and sat down and talked with him and said, now what is the problem here? Is it true that you have two different kinds of churches? One teaches one thing and calls itself the Church of Christ. Another teaches something completely different and calls itself the Church of Christ. And David Lipscomb answered, I'm sad to say that's true. Once we were all together, and then there were a group who kept appealing for changes in here and there and other ways, and until finally they said they themselves were a denomination, and 
We recognize them for what they say they are, another denomination. They are another kind of Church of Christ. They are, in their own words, a denominational Church of Christ. When that split came in 1906, over the issues we're going to be noting in just a moment, the group that left still called themselves the Church of Christ. In the South, for the most part, they gradually came to call themselves the Christian Church. And of course, among them, there were those who were even more liberal than they were, because that group divided again, and a group came from that calling themselves the Christian Church, and then in parentheses, Disciples of Christ. And that group kept going in that direction until most of them, uh, most of those bodies now have joined themselves with the Universalist movement. They do not believe in anything miraculous, no virgin birth, no miracles, none of those things, but just a body of people interested in the lives of other people, and it doesn't go much further than that. But now here are some of the things that caused all that to come about. We do have, though the division is not yet cut, umbilical cord is still there, because we have people on that other side who are doing everything within their power to draw away disciples and be as strong as they can be. One thing, they would like to be strong enough where they are found in various communities to take over the church property and let those who still take the original stand be cast out on their own and find another place to meet. Or failing in that to take away enough members from the local congregation to be as strong or maybe stronger numerically than the Church of Christ from which they have now gone. Now, here are some of the things that happened in the 1800s. I'll guarantee you they're happening today. Not just in big cities like Austin and Dallas, Texas, or Nashville, Tennessee, or Atlanta, Georgia, where indeed these things are happening. But also in many communities where the population is from three to 10,000. And congregation has existed there for over a hundred years, and now there are two or three of them calling themselves Church of Christ, but all of them different. One of the major statements, and we'll skip some of the earlier history, but one of the major movements, 1840, Robert Richardson, speaking for this left-hand liberal group, pled for a greater presence of the Holy Spirit in religion. He said, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. And we try to bottle up our emotions to the extent that we just don't allow the Holy Spirit into our worship. We don't see people jumping up in the aisles and dancing. And we don't see people speaking in tongues. That's what he was pleading for. Same man, three years later. Alexander Campbell had taken the position that the brethren had taken from the beginning of the establishment of the Church of Christ here in America. 
Like the Holy Spirit operates upon us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit helps us in our new birth and in living the Christian life through the Bible and not in any other way. Now, there were those on the other side who were saying, the Holy Spirit is felt. Or the Holy Spirit laid this on my heart, told me what to say. Or the Holy Spirit nudged me and gave me this idea. And so Campbell was taking the position that brethren had taken all along. And here's what Richardson said about Campbell's position. He said, it's like an iceberg, chilling the heart and benumbing the hands and impeding all progress in the right way. He said what Campbell and the vast majority of others were teaching in the Church of Christ leads to a spirit-killing religion made fun of the Bible. He said, ideas only, not words of Scripture, are the dictates of the Spirit. Of the authors of the Bible, he said, they were not then properly inspired writers, but inspired thinkers. His idea is, you get up to speak and the Holy Spirit tells you what to say. I have been in, personally, in a dozen situations or more, and many times on radio and television, where people had a disdain for God's holy word, the Bible. And out of that attitude, of course, they were not studying the Bible. They were not reading the Scriptures. I mean, if the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say and what to do and how to think, why do you need the Bible anyway? The bottom line is, they display such abysmal ignorance. Many, many of them cannot even word a sentence in proper English. And they get up and go through that horrible exercise and dismiss it all before the congregation as saying, well, that's what the Holy Spirit told me to do. 1849, there was formation of another organization called the American Christian Missionary Society, organized over the objection of many, many people. The liberal group responsible for that organization, it is the responsibility of the church to preach the gospel and send missionaries. And the missionaries who are sent are responsible to the church and to the eldership that has the oversight of their work. This, of course, was a way to get around that. Form another body made up of a governing board and the church has then no responsibility for choosing the man or choosing the place. Just send all the money to that organization and they take care of all that for you. 1852. Jesse Ferguson espoused the position that the Bible is merely a collection of spiritual communications called love letters. And that God never intended us to go by the words of the Bible, but only from the ideas. Because 
the way they were originally written, he said, written from the standpoint of the culture in which the people of that day lived. And so all these things about the work of men and women in the work of the church, many, many other things were determined by the culture. Even went to the point of saying, eating the Lord's Supper grew out of a culture of people believing that in warfare, when you killed your enemy, if you ate part of his flesh and drink, drank some of his blood, then you had all the power he had in addition to the power you have. And since the people were used to something like that, that's why the Lord said, well, it'll be all right for you to go ahead and have the Lord's Supper. But he expected us to outgrow all that. 1857. Robert Richardson wrote a series of articles entitled Faith versus Philosophy. And he was answered by Talbert Fanning. Fanning wrote several articles in the Gospel Advocate on the Church of Christ. Richardson's reply was, the position taken by Brother, Fan, uh, by Brother Fanning is legalistic, and law and grace cannot stand together. Well, if I had a choice between law and grace, I would take grace. But it's not a choice between law and grace. It's not an either-or situation. It's either accept them both or reject them. You can't have one without the other. During this same year, Fanning and Richardson discussed Richardson's plea. Richardson was pleading among churches of Christ for a new hermeneutic, a new way to study and apply the Scriptures. He said the old way of logic, and reasoning, making of syllogisms and drawing reasonable conclusions was not the way to do it. The way to do it was everybody read the Bible for himself and the Holy Spirit will tell him what it means and we don't all have to agree on it. Just as so long as we all agree the Holy Spirit told you this and told me this, that's all right. He may have told you to eat the Lord's Supper every Thursday night and told me to eat it every Sunday. That's okay. We can live together because the Holy Spirit is the author of both of those. He may tell you that people ought to be baptized, and he may tell me no need for people to be baptized. That's just an old cultural thing. It's okay, because the Holy Spirit told us. 1859, there was the battle in the Brotherhood over special music. Choirs, quartets, solos, and at that time, the introduction of the use of mechanical instruments of music in the worship service in a congregation in Midway, Kentucky. A little instrument called a melodeon was introduced for the first time in the worship service of any congregation calling itself the Church of Christ. And I have seen that infamous little piece of furniture that makes music and wept. 1861. The Convention of the American Christian Missionary Society passed a resolution favoring cooperation with all denominations in the work and worship of the church. Not only are they saying, let the Church of Christ send us their money and we'll send someone out to represent the Church of Christ in the world, they're now saying, you send us your money and 
if we decide that an Episcopal priest is the one we want to send, or if we decide that we would rather send uh, one who is a Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon, then that will be left up to us. It all ought to cooperate together. 1863. Saw the rise of the major influence of James Garrison ten years later in 73. For the first time, those on the left side, still calling themselves Church of Christ, began a, an open advocacy of what they called open membership. How do you become a member of the Church of Christ? They said, by joining. doesn't matter what you believe or what your background is. If you decide, now this is a place that's close to home and uh, these people are friendly, they're my neighbors, and I would enjoy being with them now. I believe you ought to keep the Sabbath, and I don't think there's anything wrong with instruments of music, and I don't think people need to be baptized. But you come and make a statement, I would like to be a part of this congregation. And the attitude was growing strongly. Anybody that says that, we ought to accept them, regardless of what they believe or teach. It was worded in this way in many instances. What will happen to the pious unimmersed? In other words, is baptism essential to salvation? Of course it was when Jesus gave the Great Commission, and it was when Simon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and told people what to do to be saved. One of my own brethren, who has written many fine books, he wrote a book about the ACLU and their liberalism. That's an outstanding book. He wrote a book about homosexuality, about how Sodom exists here in America, just like it did and as wickedly as it did thousands of years ago. But he wrote a book entitled, Baptism, the Marriage Ceremony to Christ. He said one of the important things about baptism is when you're baptized, and God adds you to the church, Acts 2, verse 47. That's the bride of Christ. But he had a problem that a lot of other people have had down through the years. Well, what about folks that don't believe in baptism? They're good people. Or what about people who've never heard the gospel? They're good people. And so there was the question of the pious unimmersed. Well, the liberal side of these issues took the position that if a person was good, they were saved, whether they were baptized or not. Which, of course, is ridiculous. That means we don't need a Savior. Just tell everybody to be good. In fact, we're going to see some of the evidence of that in just a moment. But back to the man I was talking about a moment ago. In his book on baptism, in which he said, you become a part of the bride of Christ at the time you're baptized, said, now I have my own personal convictions about people who have not been baptized. He said they're married to Christ too, but in a different way. He said those who've been baptized are legally, lawfully married to Christ. Those who have not been make up his common law wife. And so in heaven through all eternity, Jesus will have two wives. He will have his legitimate bride, the church. And then he'll have all of these honest and sincere people who he classified as being the common law wife of Jesus. 
1889, James Garrison denied the validity of the Restoration Movement. He said, how could you restore the first century church, the 19th century? And which one are we going to restore? One of Corinth that had all the fornication and other problems with it? One at Galatia and Colossians? Who had problems with the keeping of the law? Which one are we going to restore? Missing the point, of course. Going to restore the original pattern laid down by inspiration. 19, uh, 18, uh, 1989, in Nashville, something happened that was a direct mirror of what happened exactly a hundred years ago in 1889. In 1889, the Christian Women's Board of Missions officially sanctioned women in all roles of church work. Women could lead singing in the worship. Women could lead prayer in the worship. Women could read scripture in the worship. Women could preach in the worship. Matter of fact, they had their yearly assemblies. Women were the speakers and women filled all the other roles, even though there usually were about as many men present, preachers and elders, to see what was happening, as there were women. hundred years after that, Nashville, Tennessee, at the inception of this thing we call Jubilee. Classes taught by women were open to any men who would like to come in and listen. Direct, of course. A direct contradiction of what the Scriptures teach about the role of women in regards to matters of gender. 1906. The year of the final rupture between the two bodies. A man by the name of R.N. Cade was preaching for the largest congregation in Nashville, Tennessee, and he took the position that all honest people are saved. And this is the way he worded it. A few years ago, a man by the name of Robert Owen, one of the outstanding and well-known atheists of his day, had debated Alexander Campbell on the existence of God. Robert Owen said, there is not a God. There's no such thing as providence. We just all happen to be here, and the time will come when we will happen to leave, and that's all there is. And here's the position Cave took. He said, if Robert Owen was really honest in believing there is no God, He's just as saved as anybody who believes there is a God. And so it was in that same year that the U.S. Census recognized two different kinds of churches of Christ. Now, I said here in the South, most of them on the left-hand side began to call themselves the Christian church. But if you go, as I do very often, above the Mason-Dixon line, you'll find that all of them still call themselves churches of Christ. And if you want to visit a service, you have to call ahead of time and say, now, which kind of church of Christ is this? What time am I supposed to quit? As members of the body of Christ, we paid in 1906 a high price for standing for the truth. For example, When the division came, those that went with the liberal element 
to form this different kind of Church of Christ, this denominational Church of Christ. Numbered over one million. Those who remained who still believe that the Holy Spirit teaches and guides through the Word. Those who believe that acceptable worship to God is singing praises to Him without the use of instrumental music because it's not mentioned in the New Testament. That baptism must be practiced, as the Lord said, in order to receive the remission of sins. That membership in the church comes as a result of obeying the gospel, and the Lord makes you a member of the church. You don't join it. That the Bible, to be understood, must be rightly divided, as Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word truth. Now, those folks that don't believe any of those numbered more than a million. The folks who believed all of these things we've just said numbered 159,000. And so those that took the path of error numbered more than eight times, or around eight times, what those who continued to strive for the old paths stood for and believed. In the brotherhood, when congregations divided, more than 80% of the time, the group that had departed from the way got the building and all other property owned by the church. Faithful brethren began meeting in storefronts and private homes, things of that nature. That's not all. There were 35 colleges and universities that these brethren, during the days in which they were all one, as God said we should be, by their blood, sweat, tears, and money, had founded and had funded 35 colleges and universities. When the split came, that liberal group took 28 of those colleges and universities. Faithful brethren managed to scrap together seven of them. And these were the smallest and least influential of all the organizations that faithful brethren had been behind. question is, where are we now? Not one thing, not one thing have I mentioned as being characteristic of the group that formed the denominational Church of Christ is missing today. I have books in my possession written by men well known in our brotherhood, Abilene, Texas. Dallas, Texas, Malibu, California, Nashville, Tennessee, on and on and on the list can go. And most of you would be familiar with every name I would call. All of these insist you can't 
take a blueprint and go back and build the church like it was in the first century? And even if you could, who'd want it? Who wants to live and act like people did in the first century? They say, now, the only way we're going to survive is to change with the times. Well, I know a couple of religious, religious organizations that have changed with the times. And one of them, a very large denomination, is losing more than a million members a year. And have been doing that for more than 20 years. That's the same road down which these brethren would have us go. If I should make a list of colleges and universities where the truth is still believed and still taught, you'd be surprised how short that list would be. But you still have brethren who don't know that. Many, of course, know it and like it that way. A lot of brethren don't know it. When you send your children to places like that, and you send your money to places like that, you're helping to produce the very thing that makes that large segment of the church just another denomination. College of the Bible, Brother J.W. McGarvey, one of the better known of the men in the Restoration Movement, was the president of that university for a number of years, located in Lexington, Kentucky. I've been there. I've held several meetings in the Lexington, Kentucky area. Here's a college founded by faithful members of the church, funded by faithful members of the church, but then taken away from them by those of a younger generation who had put not one dime into it, not one drop of blood or sweat or tears. You can go to Bethany College, it's now called a religious seminary. You sat in on the classes there. You would, quote, learn from those great professors that the Bible is not inspired. It's another of the great pieces of literature in the world. God never inspired men and told them what to say or to write. Men did that on their own, mostly out of the background in which they were raised. They make the same plea. I'm to wait for two bells. They make the same plea in regard to people like the Apostle Paul. They say, well, you can't take those statements Paul said about women not being able to teach and preach when men are present, or not being able to be elders in the church. You can't take those at face value and say God told him that. You have to look at all the circumstances and remember that Paul was a crabbed old bachelor who probably had had a lot of trouble with women earlier in his life, who had rejected him and turned him down. It's because he didn't like women that he said those things about the role of women in church. Those things are being taught 
in colleges and universities where some of my faithful brethren are still sending their money. Andre Reasoner, about three years ago. In a position of great authority in the Bible department of one of our big universities. Stated openly, Jesus was not born of a virgin. Instead, he probably was born of a union of Mary with some of the Roman soldiers who were occupying Palestine, and she just simply pulled the wool over Joseph's eyes because he was a sincere, God-fearing, God-believing person, and she convinced him, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't believe Jesus ever worked any miracles. Where the Bible college was located in Lexington, one of the 35. Here we are a hundred years later. There in Kentucky, in the heartland of the Restoration Movement. Sometime when you're in Lexington, you ought to go out to the Lexington City Cemetery. And you can visit the grave sites of many of these great heroes of the faith. In the area of Lexington, Kentucky, a hundred years ago, there were 40 congregations of churches of Christ. Now, in a radius around the college, of about 70 miles. There are six counties where the Church of Christ does not even exist. Five counties where there is one congregation of the Church of Christ, numbering less than 20. And in the very place where the Restoration Movement was launched, where Barton Stone, great man, in saying, let's go back and do things in the Bible way. For nearly a hundred years, the Church of Christ did not exist in that whole county again. The denominational church existed. You can go to Cane Ridge and see the gravesite with a large marker of Barton W. Stone, this great man we were talking about a moment ago. All that property now is owned by the Church of Christ that calls itself the Christian Church, a denomination in cooperation with all the other denominations in the area. You can see the old log building. They have built a permanent structure over it so it can be protected from the weather. But you can press a little button and it'll give you a short history of what happened there. And they will tell you about Barton W. Stone, who was a member of the Christian church. They go through this long spiegel. Then you go out to the cemetery and you see this large monument erected at the time of his death, which was more than a half century ago. It says, Barton W. Stone, a member of the church of Christ. That division had not happened at the time he died. And so what he means by the church of Christ is something completely different to what those people in the Christian church mean by it. 
Now, I say that, say this. We are facing desperate times. Our colleges and universities have been taken over. Almost every congregation of any size is predominantly on the side of the liberals who take the position. You simply do what you want to do. Whatever it takes to please people, their idea is we must become contemporary and throw away that which is traditional. One man told me, as a Ph.D., in religious philosophy. He said, my father went as far as the seventh grade. I have a Ph.D. He said, my father is an old traditionalist who believes exactly what you do. He said, now answer this question for me. If I could not only finish high school, but finish college and have a Ph.D. in religion above that, if I still believe the same thing he believed, what in the world would be the value of my education? You need to think about that. I appreciate being able to speak to you in this class period this morning.